You would go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Matthew uh, chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse 12. Um, and as you're turning, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this day. I hope that, uh, Father, you'll be glorified in every word that's said, everything that's done, Father. I pray that you'll put a watchman over my lips, Lord, that you'll draw out everything you want out. Uh, that I, pray, I pray, Father, that I have liberty here in the pulpit, but Holy Spirit, also I pray that you'll guard my mouth and not let me say anything that you don't want me to say, Father. I'm asking you right now to open our hearts, Father God, mine included, Father, everybody uh, within the sound of my voice, everybody that will hear this, Father, I pray that there'll be open hearts, open minds, so we can hear what you have to say, so that we can obey you, Lord, because we know that that's what's best for us, but Father, more importantly, it's just, it's just right, Father, you deserve our obedience. So, Father, I just want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to study your word today, I pray that we'll see fruit from it, for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, as many of you know, uh, on Sunday nights, I've been preaching through uh, Matthew's Gospel for a really long time now. And today, we reach one of the most pivotal points in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, we see that Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, most people will recognize that verse. It's very common. In fact, it's commonly called the golden rule. Uh, verse 12 is really Jesus' one-sentence summary of his entire teaching on the law of God. And we'll talk more about that later. I'll, I'll show you uh, how we can prove that. But it's really his summary, his summation statement, his conclusion statement on everything he said about the law of God to the Jews listening to him at this point. Throughout his Sermon on the Mount thus far, our Lord has said a, a great deal concerning uh, the morality prescribed by the law of Moses as well as the religious practice of the Jews and then by extension that of all mankind. And in doing this, he has clearly shown our total inability to save ourselves by the works of the law. Throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, the, the key point that has always been the edge of every word is that this is what God says, this is what he truly means by this for your life, and this is how you're totally incapable of doing this on your own. That's his whole point. This last point is one that Jesus' followers have always unashamedly held to. And Paul reiterates this truth in Romans 3.20. He says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We as believers are believers uh, because on the front end, at some point, we understood we could not save ourselves, right? We realized, we saw the law, we saw what the law called for, you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we had the eyes of our heart open and we said, I cannot be perfect, therefore I cannot save myself. So we searched for a Savior and by the grace of God, by His Holy Spirit, He led us to the Savior, led us to Christ. That's what happened when God started to call us to Christ. So before we go further... One thing that I think we've got to understand if we're going to really understand the golden rule here is that misconceptions lead to faulty belief. And faulty beliefs lead to wrong actions. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how devout you are. It doesn't matter uh, how much tradition you rest on. If you have faulty belief, you will have faulty actions. 
If you're on the wrong path, you will walk the wrong direction. So, prior to this verse, Jesus taught in chapter 6, in verses 22 and 23, he said, The eye is the lamp of the body, if you remember when we talked about this. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In the same way that a bad lens will lead to increased blindness, bad theology or a wrong general and fundamental understanding of how to process truth only leads to further darkness in your life. Uh, this is a problem that has affected mankind in a horrific way ever since Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. In fact, all of us have had a bad eye. You may say, no, I've never had a bad eye. I've always believed this way. No, that's not true. You call God a liar. You have had a bad eye. When you were born, you were born with a bad eye. The Bible says this. It says to believers in Ephesians 5, 8, he says, even to those, like I said, who are now believers in Ephesus, he says, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. At one point in time, every believer has been someone who walked in darkness and had an eye full of darkness. We all were born with a bad lens, so to speak. This is because all of us at some time have been those who were trapped in our unbelief. You weren't born believing. I wasn't born believing. God granted faith at some point in time in our life. So in our unbelief, we were blinded. Paul writes of this saying, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So unbelief has at some point, like we said, blinded every single human ever born from seeing the truth of God and His glory. And it's because of this that we sin. And it's because of this that Paul says in verse 3 that those in such a state are those who are perishing. It's because of our unbelief, it's because of our spiritual blindness that we will perish. It is because of the blindness of mankind caused by their unbelief and their failure to see the glory of Christ as being better than anything this world has to offer that they make wrong decisions and they engage in wrong activities that will serve as evidence against them on the day of judgment. It is because of that blindness that they will perish eternally. And the world around us is perishing because of unbelief. The fallen human nature wants to place all emphasis concerning salvation on our own works, does it not? And we do that because we feel like we're in control, don't we? You know, Brother Tony says this all the time. Brother Kyle says this all the time. I say this all the time. One of the statements that we hate to hear the most is when someone all of a sudden they, 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 they end up going to jail or a kid doesn't turn out right or whatever. They haven't lived for God their entire life and all of a sudden now they say it's time to do what? Get their life right. As if you had any ability to on your own get your life right. It's impossible. Can I do it? The mind that is set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's an inability. So mankind wants to trust in their own works, in the blindness of their own belief to save them. It doesn't want to really rely on God's grace or even be accountable to God. And the world's views of the golden rule highlight this truth maybe better than anything else. To begin with, if you remember, to put it in context, Matthew is a first century Palestinian Jew writing to other Jews from 
predominantly the same era and I mean from the same area and from the same era of time. The Jewish religion of his day was a system of moralism and works. The religious rulers of that time thought that by keeping what they considered to be the uh, greater parts of the law, that they could somehow make up for all their failures in what they called the lesser parts of the law. And by this, they thought that they could attain salvation. They thought they could tip the scales, so to speak. They thought if they did the really heavy things, then all the little fragmented things would kind of level out and they could earn salvation and they could earn justification in the eyes of God. If they could figure out some loophole or some way of legally meeting their obligations to God, they thought he would accept them. One example of this faulty understanding is seen in the way that uh, the religious rulers viewed even the second greatest commandment. Now you would think if you were going to try to earn salvation, you would definitely want to nail the first and the second greatest commandments, right? If you're going to try to keep two, those would be the two, and you want to keep them to the letter of the law, wouldn't you? So we see that their blindness even caused them to warp their own doctrine, their own way of trying to earn salvation. If you look in uh, Matthew, uh, excuse me, look in Luke 10, starting chapter 25, we see an interaction between Jesus and a scribe. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The scribe meant to disqualify people, most people, from being considered one of his neighbors so that he would only have to worry about loving just a few people. He wouldn't have to worry everybody, therefore making earning salvation way easier, right? Their false understanding of the truth led these men to desire to change even the requirements of the law that they thought would save them into something that they thought they could accomplish in order to save themselves. Do you see how faulty that is? System of works will never work. The first century Jews were not the only ones to have a faulty perception of this truth that we're talking about in Matthew 7:12. All other merit-based religions of the world hold some similar misconception. For example... Uh, Confucianism teaches what has been termed the silver rule, Jane. We've got the golden rule. Confucius termed the silver rule. It said this. Confucius wrote, Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Now, some say that Confucius was teaching the same thing that Jesus was. But that's obviously not true. Confucius merely taught that one should not do something undesirable to another. What Jesus taught was you go do good to others. Confucius said just don't go do any harm. To give an example, Confucius would say if you walk down the street and you should see a homeless person, just don't walk over and take the last thing he has. Don't make him more poor. Don't rob a homeless person so that he's in a worse state. Jesus teaches that we get up out of our living rooms and up out of our houses and we go into the streets to find the poor so that we can give them all that we have because we long to do so. In fact, he said that we should go and we should 
feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked and take in the stranger and visit the sick and the imprisoned. Why? Because what we've done to the least of these, his brethren, we have done unto Christ himself. These two teachings are not the same. They're not the same. And our modern secular culture also has its own perversion of the golden rule. You may have heard of this, you may not. Many prescribe today to what has been termed the platinum rule. Supposedly because platinum is more valuable than gold by the end. So some snarky people in our culture today try to hijack the value of their teaching as being above that of God's. This ideology rewards the golden rule to read, do unto others as they would have done unto them. The understanding is that if someone does not want to be confronted over their sin, or if they want to be accepted as they are, we should consider their wishes to be the most morally correct course of action and comply with their desires. That's not the same as what Jesus is teaching, is it? It's not. See, the problem here, again, is with a bad lens. And a bad lens leads to wrong understanding, and a wrong understanding leads to wrong action, and wrong action leads to death. You see, the problem with viewing God's truth through a dark understanding or a bad eye is what it always leads to. Regardless of how they try to package it, all of these three groups, the Jews of Jesus' day, all other world religions outside of Christianity, and the pagan secular culture all do the same thing with God's commands. Hear me. They attempt to separate the person of God from his teachings. They try to separate the moralism that Christ teaches from Christ himself. I'll take the moral teaching because that may, make, that may be good for society. I'll take the moral teaching because that may mean that I end up living a, a happier life. I'll take the moral teaching because it just sounds right. My grandmother told me that that's right. I was always taught the golden rule in school or whatever. But I don't want Christ because he tends to claim too much of my life. You see? This always leads to error because when the absolute authority on which these teachings have been founded has been removed, the focus will always revert to that of man instead of God. And that's always fatal. In the case of the Jews, their man-made traditions exalted human concerns while disregarding God's law. Jesus points that out in Mark 7, 9 when he said to the religious rulers, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And we often do the same. Too often we hold to Southern Christian tradition instead of truly obeying the commands concerning righteousness and mercy and humility. Because the Jews saw the law as a way of earning salvation via moral superiority, it only led to greater sin. When they thought that they had obeyed the law sufficiently so as to be saved, they saw themselves as superior to other people who had not reached that mark. And what did they expect? Praise. I've achieved a rank that you have not achieved. You must worship me. And what did Jesus say? He condemned this. He said, this proved their lostness. What did he say in John 5, 44? He said, how can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's a pointed statement, isn't it? How do you have faith at all when you care more about the praise of men and you care less or not at all about the praise that comes from God? All other world religions reject the person of Jesus Christ as being who he reveals himself to be in the Bible. 
All other world religions reject the biblical Christ. They may have their own form of Christ. They may have their own version or caricature of Christ. But they all reject the biblical Christ. And because of this, once they have rejected Jesus as God, then they have to come up with some new so-called God or authority on which to ground their teachings. If they don't, they have nothing to stand on, right? If I come up to you and I said, hey, I started Brianism. You should love people that hate you. Well, why? Because I said so. That's not going to sway a single one of you. And it shouldn't. They have to come up with a greater being. They have to make up a new so-called God so that their teachings have some grounding, they think, to stand on. The problem here is twofold. First of all, these gods are all created in their own image, in their own likeness. All the false gods of the world have always had human traits and human characteristics. None have been transcendent. None of them. The other problem with this is that none of these other names can save men from their corrupt nature, can they? None of these false gods can save us. They cannot truly change the hearts of men and save them from their sin or the consequences of their sin. These religions might offer behavior modification, but they're all founded on false promises and they have no lasting foundation. The shifting sands of Buddha and Muhammad and any so-called Christian cults that claim some tie to Jesus but truly yield their loyalty to some false prophet will all in the end prove to only be destructive as the religious lives of many who have built on the teachings of these fall to the ground on the day of judgment and crush them. Trying to find salvation in mere moral teachings based on any authority other than that of Jesus is doomed because there is no salvation there is salvation in no other there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved Jesus is the only one that saves he's the only one that truly changes us now and saves us for forever there's no other name that can do this and today's culture those who flaunt this so-called platinum rule readily reject the God who created them so that they might worship what? Themselves. That's what our culture does today. It worships itself. Everyone, all of the fallen world around us, people worship themselves. The biggest thing going is that, hey, you're all God, apparently. That's really what it is. Everybody walks around thinking they're God. Those in our secular culture hold their desires above that of God's. And God warns of this in Romans 1. He says, claiming to be wise. He speaks to cultures now, not just individuals, cultures. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Have you ever heard of a quote-unquote wiser culture than we have now? We have so much more information. There are things... Uh, you know, there are things that people can do with computers today that when I was growing up watching Star Trek, we thought that stuff would never happen. I remember, Joe, the first time I walked to a grocery store and the door opened on its own. I thought, oh my goodness, Captain Picard is here. I was ready to beam back home. And now what can we do? You have, if you have a cell phone, you have more technology in your right hip pocket than people had when they went to the moon in a cell phone. We are wise in man's way, but we have become fools. Why? We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
When this is the case, even though men and women try to incorporate certain facets of God's moral teaching whenever convenient, they are doomed for destruction. God also makes this clear in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, when Paul writes, For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. With anyone that has eyes to see, that pretty well explains the direction and the condition of our culture today, does it not? That's the predominant growing moral problem in our culture. Why? Because we as a culture have become fools. We as a culture have exchanged the glory of God for worshiping ourselves and our own desires above His. So Jesus in Matthew 7, 12 calls us to a new focus and a new way of living based on unchangeable truth that is set by the absolute authority, that being Himself. We're being commanded to be proactive and not reactionary in our loving of others. You and I cannot let the lost world set the criteria for what love or what doing good to others means. I cannot just seek to do no harm, but I should seek to do good to others. I cannot try to disqualify people from receiving my love like the scribe would do to his neighbor. I must view everyone as my neighbor and love all people. And this doesn't mean that uh, that I disregard the other person's desires either. That's what the culture would say. The culture says that when I tell the, the world of their sin that I'm disregarding their feelings and their desires. I'm disregarding the way that they feel about things. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Instead, it means that I care about their desires in the light of truth and not blindness to it. The lost want others to accept their sinful lifestyles and call that love. But I ask you, if I do that in light of what I know about heaven and hell and judgment, if I don't say anything about the sin of my brother or the sin of my neighbor that's going to lead to his eternal suffering, how can I ever call that love? If I see what you're doing, or if you see what someone else is doing and the way they're living and you realize that if nothing happens to take them off that track, then they may feel comfortable right now for a small amount of time. But in the uh, echoes of eternity, there will only be the screams of their torment in an eternal hell of fire. How in the world can I ever legitimately say I will love you by not telling you what you're doing to yourself? That is stupid. That may not be a very culturally correct way of saying it, but that's what it really is. That's foolish. If we as believers, knowing what we know, were in their place, if we were lost in sin, would we not want someone to come tell us? If our children were lost in sin, would we not want someone to get out of their bed in the middle of the night and go, and no matter how much flack they were going to catch for it, confront our children and say, you are sending yourself into eternal destruction. Stop it. Just stop it. 
There's a better way. There's a God who loves you and has paid the price to save you. Trust him and give him your life so that you don't have to suffer. Wouldn't we long for someone to go wherever they are and speak the gospel and speak the truth and endure the backlash so that our children could be saved? Yes. If you want to know what the golden rule means today, I'll tell you. It means what it's always meant. As we said before, this is Jesus' summary of the entire law. So what does that mean? When, I asked about, when asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus gave his summary of the law in this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, if the golden rule fulfills all the law and the prophets, and the two greatest commandments fulfill all the law and the prophets, then the golden rule and the two greatest commandments are really one and the same, are they not? Katie, if x equals 2 and y equals 2, is not x and y the same thing? She is a math teacher, state tested. She said yes. So I'm right. Okay. Man, I'm glad you said yes. I was terrible at algebra. I was worried this was going to mess me up. No. If... Joseph, you teach rhinosauruses, you be quiet. <laughs> if the golden rule fulfills the law and the prophets and the two greatest commandments fulfill the law and the prophets, then the golden rule and the two greatest commandments are really one and the same. Two different ways of saying the exact same thing. So the golden rule has always meant that we should love others as we love ourselves in the light of the truth of God's word. At the same time, it has always meant that we must love God as we love ourselves in the light of the truth we know. I want you to think about the implications of that for your life. When I was going through this, I'll be honest with you, this floored me. As I meditated on this, Mama Jean, I saw that this was going to, it had to change me. Think about this a minute. I want others to be thankful when I show them how thoughtful and how kind I can be to them. So I must thank God for his daily thoughtfulness and kindnesses in giving me grace to know him and grace to understand the scriptures and grace to believe and faith to follow. I should thank God throughout the day every time I take a breath that he has given. Hold my children that he has granted me. Kiss my wife that he has assigned me. Take a bite of food that he has provided and wear the clothes that he has given me to cover my nakedness and shame. I should thank him every time I get in my car and I do not have a wreck. Or every day that I do not get a call that one of my loved ones has died of a heart attack or a violent crime. I should be more thankful to God because he is so kind and thoughtful to me. How much would that one aspect alone change our lives? I want my feelings to be considered by others. Don't we all want our feelings to be considered by others? Whenever a decision is made in your family or at work and any group that you're a part of, don't you get a little miffed whenever they make a decision, they tell you about it afterwards? Yes, we've probably all been there. We want our feelings to be considered by others. I must consider God's feelings. 
I should think about his feelings when I talk to others or when I'm tempted to just skim over my daily Bible readings or when I'm tempted to sin. I should consider his feelings when I think about the gospel or when I plan my day or when I decide what to pray for. I should think about how God's going to feel about this. I should think about how he feels about my life and my day and my way of living. I want God to speak to me. Don't you all want God to speak to you? Wouldn't we all love it if we woke up every day and there was like an angel sitting right beside, some of us would freak us out, but maybe wake up, you get to brush your teeth, get your hair done, ladies, you come in, then there's the angel, okay? You feel prepared now. But we wake up every day and there's an angel sitting right on the, on the foot of our bed and said, I have a message from God for you. He wants you to have a great day. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, we'd all love that. Don't sit there like a knot on a log. You know you love that. You'd be sending that angel back with some questions, wouldn't you? Hey, tomorrow, could God answer this for me? What investment do I need to make for retirement? All that kind of Yeah, we'd abuse it. That's right. I want God to speak to me, so I must pray to him. I want God to speak to me often. I must pray without ceasing. I want God to commune with me. So I've got to set aside time to commune with him. I want God to listen when I pray. So I've got to listen when he speaks through his word and through preaching. I want God to always hear me when I pray, right? So I've got to listen every time his word or every time preaching is offered. I want God to hold me in high regard and welcome me one day into his kingdom. So I have to hold him in high regard and welcome him daily into my home, into my job, into my thoughts, into my actions, into my public life and my private life, in my emotions and every part of my life that I have any control over. This could go on and on and on. We must reevaluate our loving of God today. Do you see how if we love God the way that we want to be loved, how much of our life it's really going to take control of? It takes it all, Chad. It takes it all. It takes every bit of our life. It takes every breath. We love Him. If you ask one question, what do Christians do? The answer is this. They love God. That's it. They love God. And as an extension of loving God, they love people. As an extension of loving God, they hate sin. As an extension of loving God, they want Christ to return. So they are desperate to go out and share the gospel all over the world so that this gospel will be preached all over the world and then the end can come. Everything about our lives comes out of or flows from the fact that we who once hated God, although we never dare breathe it out of our mouth, we emphatically proved it with every second of our lives now have been changed so that we love God in everything we do and we desire to look at our lives and see the way we want to be loved so we can know how to love him more that is what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7 verse 12 the question is are we really loving him as he deserves to be loved I think that one question, if we ended right there, should call every single person to the altar to repent. Because I know I'm not loving him the way he deserves to be loved. And I know you're not loving him the way he deserves to be loved. There's a call to repent today. We do not love God perfectly. 
However, Jesus did this for us perfectly. Jesus loved the Father by submitting to his will as he desires that we submit to him. Did he not? Jesus calls us to submit to dying to ourselves daily. He calls us to die daily in pursuit of him in that he says, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Therefore, when faced with taking up his own cross, Jesus said to his father, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus did what he would have us to do. He wants us to take up our cross and follow him. He submitted to his father's will, took up his cross, and obeyed his father. Jesus did for sinners what he, want, what he wanted done for himself. In Ephesians 5, 28, and 29, excuse me, 28 through 30, it tells us of Christ and his church. It says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I want you to really catch that. I think this will blow your mind if you get a hold of it. Jesus loved those who were declared to be his bride, and thereby his body from eternity past. Before God created the foundations of the earth, he looked into what we call the future, he just calls being, and he saw a people that he would choose for his own. He elected a people to be the bride of Christ. And he went ahead and God the Father in his heart and mind betrothed a people to Christ to be his bride. At that time, Christ in eternity past loved the church as you love your own skin and bone. When the Bible says that we're the body of Christ, it's not playing. When the Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two become one flesh, it's not that Christ is playing off of that symbol and he's working that out to him and the church. It's that that's the way it has always been between him and his church and he gave us marriage so we would see it in a physical representation. When Christ looked at you in eternity past, he saw his own flesh and bone headed for eternal destruction and he desperately wanted someone to step in and save him. So he stepped in and he gave his own life for sinners. That's what happened. How much does Jesus love you? He thinks of you as what you are if you're in Christ. You are literally a part of himself. You cannot be separated from him. He died and rose again to make sure you could never be separated from him. It doesn't matter if you especially feel like you're a part of the body of Christ. It doesn't matter if you see that you're perfect like Christ was because you're not. All that matters is if you have faith and you trust in him in that way today, you are a part of the very body of Christ and he cherishes you more than you cherish your own physical body. So he gave himself to destruction for sinners. He did for us what he would have others do for him. Jesus agonized over being cut off from God. In Matthew 27, 46, it tells us of Jesus on the cross. He said, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He agonized over for the first time ever in eternity being separated from his father because the sins of the world be laid upon him who knew no sin. 
And because he agonized so much and he did not want this, he has given us a promise. He said, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He said he would never leave you nor forsake you. He does for you what he wanted for himself. He never desired to be cut off from God the Father, even though it was necessary. So he has dedicated himself to making sure that because of him, you will never be separated from him. He does for you what he wanted for himself. And Jesus values intimacy with the Father and future glory. So what did he do? He has made us children of God and he guarantees his own future glory for us. He prays for all believers asking the Father in John 17. Listen to these words. I want you to listen to this. He prayed to God the Father, if you're a believer in here, for me and you. And if you're not a believer in here right now, you can be. You can trust him and this can apply to you. He said to the Father that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And love them even as you love me. The statement that we have to take from that is this. If you're a believer, how much does God the Father love you? He loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. It almost sounds wrong to say except that God said it. How do we know? He proved it. How did he prove it? He did for you what he would have done for himself. And then he calls us, who are part of his body, to do the same thing. Jesus always loved you perfectly. Jesus always, as a man on this earth, the God-man, loved his Father perfectly. God, in Matthew 7, 12, the whole summation of the law is that we love God perfectly. And as an extension of that, we love each other perfectly. Amen? I think if we all took a sober look at ourselves, you see what I've seen all week about myself. I can't do it. I want to. I try to. I long to. Ache to love God perfectly and then wake up every day just seeing total, you know, just seemingly total individual. Totally frustrated. Totally mad at myself all the time. I want to love you perfectly. Can I pull it off? It doesn't appear so. Try though I might. Just fail and fail and fail. So we are lost. Except for the fact that Christ came and he gave himself for us. Christ came and propitiated for us. There was a requirement. The requirement was that we love God perfectly and that we love people perfectly. That we be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. And we did not do it, and we cannot do it. We've already in here, all of us, blown it. We've messed it up at some point in time. We're still messing it up today. So what happened? Christ came, 
And he lived the perfect life of love. Think, he loved God the Father perfectly every single second of his born life. And he loved every single person. Not just the people that were nice to him. He loved his enemies that would one day yell, crucify him. He loved them perfectly. So that he could offer to God the perfect life for you. And then he could take your place in loving you still and loving God. And he could take all the wrath of God for you. So that the great legal debt that you and I owe God would be paid. And so that the relationship with God the Father that we had broken would be restored. And we could be called children of God. And we could be one with him once again. And we could, in the future, live in eternity as the bride of Christ, as his very body clothed in the very glory that Christ earned for himself. That you and I cannot earn, but he earned and has now willingly, out of love, given to us. And he calls us now to live as people who can look to the way things are above and know how things are going to be in eternity with him and live our life now in that way. Amen? Amen. So the call today is this. If you know Christ, but you see that your life is not measuring up with just this one verse, then your responsibility today out of obedience and out of love God is to do the only right thing that he tells us to do. You repent. God does not give a question. Our Father does not say if you feel like it. He says if you see that you're falling short, your responsibility, your duty to me is to repent. You confess your sin. You rake your own soul over the coals and you see where you're falling short. You confess that to God. Don't cut yourself any slack and you repent and you repent to God. For the glory of his name. And if you don't know Christ today, I'm begging you, Christ wants to save you. You may be in church your whole life. You may have been in more sermons than somebody in a third world country will ever get the chance to hear. But Christ has never truly changed your heart. You don't even feel stirred to love people and love God the way we're talking about. If your heart is dead, life is available. He says that if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will knock. If you, uh, if you, if you, uh, if you search, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. He says that... If we give good gifts to our children, how much more will he freely give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So your responsibility today is to ask. 